and welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Pratis, and today we're going to be normal people in a normal podcast discussing normal MMA events. Except, of course, we are not. Who do you think I am? A level-headed person who offers relevant journalistic content? You're gonna have to go somewhere else for that, pal. Here it's weird shit only. Love it or leave it. Be cool if you loved it, though. What with me coming from a broken home and living in desperate pursuit of validation. In any case, today we are talking about conflict. More specifically, about some of the kinds of conflict that one experiences while being a generally weird person covering a generally weird sport. And before you say, Bitch, you ain't special, we're all fucking conflicted. Yes, I am aware, and you would know that if you had taken the time to listen to the full episode before jumping to conclusions, wouldn't you? Trust me, it is not my intention to imply that anyone is in any way doing okay as a human person in 2020, okay? We're all fucked in our own little special ways. Also, a clarification. My initial intention was to touch on the many ways that being involved in MMA can be challenging for professionals and fans alike. As I began writing, however, I realized that I am not Martin Scorsese and therefore have not earned the right to hold you hostage for about 400 hours. So I did some cuts and today I will speak mostly as a writer. We'll later get into the more personal, arguably trickier matters such as, say, the soul-crushing moment when you realize that a really good athlete might not be a really good person and also may or may not believe that everyone is a pedophile and that Bill Gates created COVID to sell vaccines. I also want to quickly acknowledge that, just as I had finished writing this, MMA Junkie published a lengthy interview with Danielle Nickerson regarding alleged physical abuse by her ex-husband and current UFC fighter Mike Perry. That is obviously important news and it needs to be discussed but it's also a delicate subject that warrants proper time and attention. Meaning, I didn't want to just rush out an episode. But I would highly recommend that you listen to her full interview and read the very well-reported story that is up now on MMA Junkie. My recommendation to listen to me isn't quite as enthusiastic, but hey, you're here already, right? Might as well. About two weeks ago, in the preliminary card of an otherwise ordinary USC event, MMA lost its collective shit. After opponent Impa Kasanganai caught one of his kicks, middleweight Joaquin Buckley managed to leverage himself, spin on his own axis, and extend his other leg with enough force and precision to produce the Statue of David of spinning back kicks. The foot missile went straight into Kasanganai's jaw, causing him to wobble fatality style for just a second before dropping to the mat. And that was it. Within minutes, Buckley had spread through our timelines like a half-baked conspiracy theory in a family group chat. As we'd soon find out, though, the enthusiasm wasn't unanimous. Hours later, as we went about picking up the pieces of our freshly blown minds, ESPN anchor Scott Van Pelt made the grave mistake of voicing his displeasure at the sight of a semi-conscious human head helplessly hitting a mat after a violent meeting with the foot. The nerve. In a way, that went just about as well as one would expect. With Van Pelt having to defend himself from, you guessed it, disgruntled Twitter people who called him, you guessed it, a pussy, and accused him of, you guessed it, 
disrespecting this very respectable sport. But that wasn't all of it. At least within the confines of my MMA bubble, I saw a different kind of response. One that mirrored my initial reaction. The gist of them was that of, well, of course, Van Pelt was entirely allowed to not particularly enjoy the sight of a human body collapsing. If anything, it seemed rather natural that he wouldn't. Isn't, in fact, enjoying the sight of a collapsing body the sign of some kind of abnormality? Look, I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist or, despite my slightly disturbing amount of knowledge on codes and serial killers and defunct Russian pop duo tattoo, an expert in anything related to the mysteries of the human mind. Just what kind of elements in one's brain's chemistry makes them enjoy the sight of fellow humans injuring each other is something that I, I can't really speak to on a scientific level. What I can speak to, though, is the fact that most of us seem pretty aware that MMA isn't for everyone. I would imagine we have all been in contact with a friend who not only doesn't care for, but shudders at the very idea of a fist meeting a face. We've all seen that one person who recoils the minute blood gushes out of a cut, and I would guess most of us have experienced the occasional resistance while trying to get brief control of an otherwise public TV in order to catch a glimpse of a main event. I, for one, have worked in a couple of all sports newsrooms and lost many a precious hour listening to middle-aged men who got paid way too much money for their obvious soccer opinions as they explained point by point why MMA was, in fact, savagery. The worst part was probably constantly finding myself in the position of defending both MMA and myself, despite the fact that I sometimes kind of agreed with them, which, of course, stays between us. I wouldn't want to give sports pundits of average intelligence an extra iota of unearned confidence. They're already hoarding the world's supply as is. Back to the point, though. Yes, I think that MMA is extreme and strange. And on the bad days, I do wonder what the fuck am I doing, not only enjoying and supporting it, but making a living out of it. Behind every viral video of a spectacular knockout, there is, after all, a person who might be severely injured or just flat-out humiliated. There's a person who put on hours, weeks, months of training, and who wanted to be the one on the other, more fortunate side of the knockout just as bad, but then just didn't. There is, after all, a person. On the good days, though, I see a complex and rich sport full of complex and rich characters who are not only top athletes, but also consenting adults making choices for themselves. Adults who knew the risks and signed contracts and were all well aware that they could be on either side of that viral knockout, who may very well not be injured nor humiliated, and at no point wanted or asked for my sympathy. An adult who is very much a person. And then there are the other, the in-between days, and those are dedicated to the very fun, not at all counterproductive art of being conflicted about the conflict. Those can go all sorts of ways, but mostly they're the ones in which I question my own questions about questioning what I do, if that makes any sense. Sip of water, pause. I wonder, for example, how much of my conflicting feelings are about genuine professional responsibility and how much of them are just silly, self-important nonsense. I wonder how much of our collective impulse to push over the hill fighters into retirement is born out of empathy for a fellow human, and how much of it is just some weird projection of internalized guilt. 
I wonder how much of our conversations about the sport are the product of a legitimate wish to help create change and how much of it is just lip service. I often wonder if I'm doing the right thing by the fighters, by the readers, by the job description. There's a line in there somewhere, and sometimes I think I can see it, but mostly I don't. And I find that more often than not, the best or perhaps the only way of dealing is trying to forget that it's there and just doing the work as honestly and as fairly as I can. Of course, there may or may not be a slight element of my own neurosis there. I wouldn't expect or recommend all my colleagues to routinely engage in this exact level of pointless self-flagellation. In one way or another, though, I do believe we have all asked ourselves some complicated questions about the sport we cover. Which, by the way, is not to say that this is an MMA exclusive. Going back to Vin Pelt, a lot of people pointed to the fact that he didn't seem quite as uncomfortable talking about football or even boxing, for example. And those were fair arguments. I mean, yeah, damage isn't the point of football, but at this point, we can't really pretend like we don't understand the damage that it causes and the severity of its long-term consequences. Fact is, we can do the which one is worse dance forever and never come to any conclusions. And I honestly cannot speak for every single sport, but I can speak for the fact that there are many layers beyond the obvious physical violence that make MMA particularly precarious to its practitioners, including, say, the fact that they have no collective bargaining power and are left to the whims of a handful of powerful people, and the fact that, in their case, making it to the big leagues is no guarantee of big money. It is, in fact, no guarantee of any money, considering that they need to perform in order to get paid, something that most fighters can only do about thrice a year if they're lucky. So while, again, we are dealing with consenting adults making their own choices, we're also dealing with a very limited pool of choices in a sport with a very limited shelf life. It is entirely possible for all these pieces of knowledge to coexist in one's conscience, though I don't think it is always possible for that to happen quietly especially during particularly unquiet times. Like, for example, amid a highly politicized global pandemic. Allow me to go back about three geographic eras and refresh your memory as to what happened circa April. Early in the pandemic, during that brief stretch of time when people were still pretending to care, the UFC became one of the first sports promotions to discuss resuming their activities. What President Dana White proudly hailed as a selfless display of immense bravery, though, wasn't received by some of us as quite as such. We had questions, and the fact that the promotion didn't initially do much to mitigate them turned those questions into concerns. So we voiced those concerns. And then everyone really fucking hated us. I won't get too deep into that, considering that this is hieroglyph years old story in COVID years, but... The fact that we had reservations about a contact sport that involves athletes and teams from all over the world physically harming each other amid what was still a pretty widespread stage of lockdown wasn't really well received by anyone. I mean, as a media member, you sort of get used to being disliked by various segments of the population at any given day, but it's very rare that so many of them happen to be angry at you simultaneously. Alas, such was our predicament. The promotion, fans, managers, fighters, 
I, for one, heard anything from why do you hate MMA to you just want to see the UFC go down. As if the downfall of MMA was somehow beneficial to us, people who not only watch, but literally make a living out of it. We heard that we were trying to take away the livelihood of fighters, that we wanted people to lose their jobs, all in exchange for unclear, just for the sake of being assholes, I guess. Even if that would cost us our own sources of income down the line, which for many, myself included, it did. I can't speak for all my colleagues, but I can speak for myself when I say that as far as professional inner conflicts go, I found that to be one of the trickiest moments to navigate. Of course, anyone who isn't a literal Disney movie villain or Tommy Laren is uncomfortable with the idea of being known as a raging assholes, but it wasn't just that. There was something about seeing that rift between me, the people I write about, and the people I do that for. Being a journalist isn't about being liked, of course. Often, especially for the ones who are really good at it, it is about the very opposite. But it is, at its core, about being a communicator. What do you do with that when actual communication seems all but impossible? With the benefit of hindsight, I do realize this all sounds just a tad overdramatic. The UFC, to their credit, introduced and implemented a respectable safety protocol. The scenario is different. The world, as it now seems to do just about every three days, changed. Other sports resumed, some a lot less carefully than MMA, and what I tend to think of as a general sense of inevitability set in. Things are back, sort of, whether we like it or not. We get to enjoy our sports, and the UFC gets to make their money, and professional athletes get to do their job, but as tempting as it is to just settle into this sense of normalcy, we can't escape the reminders of the pandemic that is still very much alive. For all the PCR tests and Fight Island bubbles and Fight Night protocols, there is still a lot that goes on between the time a fighter signs a contract until fight week. There are gyms and training partners and spouses and family members all existing beyond our comfortable sites of mask-clad commission officials, of socially distanced interviews, and of empty arenas. Just recently, I wrote about short-notice opportunities during the pandemic. I spoke to five different fighters, all of whom had 10 days or less to prepare for the UFC debuts. The results of their fights were mixed. Three of them won, two loss. None of them hesitated to take the call. None of them regretted taking it. One fighter had doubled his income for the whole previous year with one single check, thanks to a $50,000 performance of the night bonus. And two of them were able to quit their non-fighting jobs. Of course they were happy. They wanted to be in the UFC and thanks to their ability to enter doors that pandemic-related conditions helped pry open, they did. But then again, one of them had to cut 17 pounds in two days, only to lose one of his division's toughest up-and-comers. Another one fought a considerably larger opponent in a weight division above his own. Another one talked about how he had barely been able to grapple leading up to the fight due to his gym being closed. They all had to scramble in one way or another. Yet, none of them complained. They were ready and willing when others were not. They had a goal and they achieved it. Those were good stories. As we have learned, though, it's entirely possible for good things to exist alongside not-so-good things. 
And while I was genuinely happy while speaking to all of them, I was also quietly left thinking about other things. Like the unfairness of it all. Like the fact that these people had been working for years to get a shot at the big league and then barely had any time to prepare for it. Like the fact that their lives had all been changed, bonus or not, simply because they were finally about to get paid, should things go right, a living wage. What does that say not just about the UFC, which is understandably the target of so much of our criticism, but the entire structure of the sport and the choices that it really provides? Yes, the pandemic afforded life-changing opportunities to fighters who otherwise may not have had them, but what is the flip side of that? How many up-and-comers, aware that this is a fertile window for opportunities, ramped up their training despite particularly dangerous conditions around them? How much of the virus has been spreading at gyms and on mats? And how much damage has been caused beyond the high-profile cases that we actually got to hear about? And that is not to mention the long-term impact of having short-notice replacements filling in for more experienced, better-prepared opponents. Or have we forgotten all about Max Roshkopf? I hope I'm saying his name right, who was beaten from pillar to post in one of the most hard-to-watch mismatches in recent history, only to be released by the UFC weeks later. We were all very worried and had very serious discussions about that for about five minutes before other things happened and we took our worry and our discussions somewhere else. Again, it's easy to chalk it all up to adults making choices. The old, if they don't want to be fighters, they can just go be something else. But I will always be amazed at the amount of people who call themselves MMA fans and yet disregard the fact that they wouldn't have any MMA to watch if it wasn't for those competing in it. It's funny how we love a good hardship story in our promos and countdowns and wherever a hashtag inspiring can be added to, but so much of this empathy seems to end at the edges of a screen. These are people who risk everything from their orbitals to their brain cells every time they step into a cage. These are people who face serious consequences for every single night on the job. These are point blank people. It is really that simple. And as fair as I try to be in telling their stories, it's hard not to feel as both a writer and a fan like an active part of a system that often seems to forget that. It's hard not to feel like someone who can sometimes say the right stuff about things that are wrong, but who doesn't do much to fix them. Or, and of course I had to go and make this way more complicated than it needed to be, if it's even her place to want to. I hate to be the person to reiterate the obvious, but if there's one thing that anti-maskers and QAnon have taught us is that common sense is not a given. So again, I'm not saying that being an MMA professional, a choice that I consciously made and have stuck to alarmingly but willingly for more than a decade, is a particularly dire and morally difficult occupation. I'm not saying the sport is necessarily worse than others or that it's better for that matter. I'm not saying that fighters are helpless little beings who need our advocacy, because they're not, or even that they're all nice people, because some aren't. <laughs> I'm not saying that they are more screwed than all other athletes, though they are certainly more screwed than some, or that they are more deserving of our sympathy and compassion than anyone else during these particularly fucked up times. Trust me, I am very much aware that everything sucks for everyone right now. As someone who lacks the time and the resources to speak about everything and everyone, though, I have to stick to my area of expertise. And that is the very limited, 
minuscule, really, intersection between MMA, words, and a compulsive need to make shit weird. In any case, if I were in the business of solutions, I'd say there is a relatively simple formula here. Self-reflection is important, as long as it doesn't consume you. Let your conflicts and questions fuel the work, but not override it. By all means, embrace the empathy, but be sure to create some emotional distance. Know the compassion from the condescension, the sympathy from the projection, and the facts from your biases. You know, healthy balance and all. If that seems as hard for you as it is for me, though, here's another trick that I found. Just try not being an asshole. It's easier than it looks, I promise, and free of charge. It works too, most of the time. And if that fails too well, you can always just go yell at me on the internet. You can find me on Twitter all the time. You can find me on Fanbyte every few days. And you can find me here every Wednesday. I'm Fernanda Pratis, and this has been the best camp of my life. See you next week.